We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to South Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn. My co-hosts this week are Neil Bradley. Hi there. Jason Martin. Hello. And Pierre Escudo. Hello. Uh, this week, we are talking about all the stuff that's going on in the world. Surprise, surprise. Uh, the reason we're talking about all the stuff that's going on in the world is because there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, and it's uh, nasty stuff. Things like war in Ukraine. Special. Ferguson shooting. Hemorrhagic fever. Islamic State, crazy jihadi, nutjobs coming to get you and your family and your grandparents and everybody in their beds at night. Swedish police, beating people with horses. Not only that, but Ebola. Exactly. If the Islamic State don't get you, Ebola's going to get you. And maybe both of them will get you at the same time. That's the worst case scenario. Islamic Ebola? Islamic State Ebola. <laughs> Hemorrhagic Islam? Exactly. That doesn't fair thinking about it, but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, and Gaza? Uh, and Gaza, of course, yes. I mean, it's just uh, too too much to mention, really. Well, not too much to mention, but there is a lot of stuff going on. Not to mention, of course, all the crazy weather and earth changes mm-hmm. and climate change. And it's all kind um, of connected. Yeah. Uh, well, that's an important point. Well, it's all theoretically connected. Theoretically it's all, connected. Well, it's all circumstantially connected, right? Because it's all yeah. happening at the same time. It's all it's quite a bit yeah. of a coincidence, but it's throughout history we've kind of seen that at times of very big collapses, especially of large empires, this is exactly the kind of stuff that's going on. And mm-hmm. in hindsight, we always realize that actually it was part of a kind of a, uh, a humanity disease going on, this kind of spread of psychopathy and, and hysteria going around, which actually just kind of like hastens the whole problem kind of in the same way a person who, who contracts a disease or a virus has a great big fever to try to shuck it off, and uh, a lot of times the person dies from the fever, which is the defense mechanism uh, against the invading bodies. So we kind of see that you know, now going on. Uh, humanity is acting as if they're in a gigantic fever. Mm-hmm. Now we've been wondering quite a lot about uh, the causation. Is it uh, human oppression that leads to uh, cosmic uh, cataclysm, or is it cosmic cataclysm that hysterizes population, leads to a demonstration, uprising, and, oppre- and more oppression? Actually, it might be both ways. It might be a, some kind of a positive feedback loop or of negative events where you have, uh, if you start with oppression, you have these cosmic reactions, so people freak out even more. There's even more instability, even more desire to control like cosmic reaction and so on and so on. And it seems it seem that we enter this uh, very nasty loop where there's an escalation of uh, oppression and cosmic reactions. Well, where will it end? One of the ways that I kind of have always looked at it is it's a bit like when a big storm is coming, you notice that there are lots of animals that are really sensitive to it and they start acting totally crazy, even sometimes suicidal. Um, and uh, it seems like that's what's going on now. Whether or not you know people influence that in a cosmic scale, I don't know. But we know, I think, for a fact, 
that because of the nature of human beings and because of the nature of, of all living life on the planet, they are highly affected by um, the cosmic energy sources, you know, yes. the sun and, and radiation. And so I think it's definitely connected. Yeah. You can have a psychopath who sends on an unconscious level the doom that is coming and they become more restless and are more oppressing. Trying to get theirs while the getting's good. Yeah, yeah, before it's too late. And just before we get into any more details on the show, I just want to mention as well that uh, we don't say this every week or even most weeks, but uh, people can call in with their questions or comments or uh, on any topic, really. Uh, but specifically, if you have something on the topics that, uh, that we're discussing today, that would be good. But all options are on the table. Yes, yeah, as is often said these days. Most welcome calls. Um, today I'm going to play the role of the stupid mainstream supporter again, since I had the results uh, last time. So I got my blonde wig, and I have a special voice, but Israelis have the right to defend themselves against uh, Hamas rockets, right? Well, we already discussed that last week. No, yeah. but it was an example. No. So maybe you can start with Ukraine and the latest development. So. Yeah. Uh, what is going on in Ukraine? And maybe the, the first point about genesis of this uh, Ukrainian conflict. It seems odd that uh, Crimea was separated from Ukraine in a rather peaceful way. And all of a sudden, uh, some kind of civil war exploded in the rest of the country. So is there any logical link? Where does the, the conflict, what are the roots of this conflict? Who is fighting why, who and what for? Why was Crimea... Uh, safely extricated from the Ukraine without any violence, no shots being fired, and why is, you know, Novo Russia Republic having a bit of trouble? And it's quite simple. Crimea was more strategically interesting to the Russians, and they already had a giant military base there with a lot of soldiers. And uh, the uh, the Nazi party ruling Kiev right now, while they are completely and totally insane and incompetent, they are not that stupid. To, to try to attack Russia in that way. I mean, it was just, they were never going to do it. But the problem is, is that uh, the eastern Ukraine is just simply not as strategically important to the Russians as Crimea was. That's my, that's my opinion and, and why it was so easy for, why it was so soft and gentle with the Crimea thing and why it's been so horrible for the East Ukrainians. As terrible as that sounds, I mean, Russia is not really going to go immediately to a world war over them, which probably would have started if shots had been fired, you know? Uh, there was recently the humanitarian convoy that uh, was just yesterday or the day before, finally got into Ukraine and left again. Um, the hysteria over that was just, well, it's par for the course now with, with the Kiev. We know what to expect from them, but uh, it was just potatoes and insulin and what they said it was. In the end, they just, the Russian convoy just went in, brought it to Lugansk, the city in the east, in east of Ukraine, and then just returned to Russia. What's right. most interesting, though, is the reaction to it. People are talking about it as a humanitarian invasion. Seriously, I mean, there are people who are getting angry over it. How dare they invade with their humanitarian aid? It's like, hold on a second. There are people starving. You need medicine? How is this a bad thing? I mean, even, it doesn't matter. I mean, there are people who are suffering, and they're bringing them food and medicine. 
it's just it's absolutely incredible to see these people just sit there and act as if this is a violent, a, aggressive act from Russia hmm. to send medicine to people who are in need. Are there evidence that it was really a humanitarian convoy? Because many Western medias were claiming it was a covert military action. It was inspected four times, or 280 trucks, by the OCSE. Which is an European organization? No, international. International? Yeah. And they verified this. And the cargo is... manifest had what they said they had. Food? Medicine? Yeah. Well, to be honest, it's actually asymmetrical warfare uh, that uh, Russia is waging with this humanitarian uh, humanitarian aid convoy because the policy in Ukraine of the Kiev junta um, is to like the policy, the same policy that's followed by any uh, kind of nation, state or state forces, state military that is dealing with a, an insurgency or, or rebellion. Mm-hmm. They <clears throat> basically bomb the crap out of the place, uh, the entire area where the where the rebels are, kill um, civilians and rebels alike uh, to create uh, conditions that are painful enough that the people, maybe not the rebels themselves, but certainly the, the civilian population in the area, will uh, stop supporting the, the rebellion, uh, a call for peace, call for some kind of an end to the conflict, which would, in that situation, usually favor the, the regime, the government forces. Um, by bringing this aid in, uh, Russia is thwarting that, the development of that scenario where, where the people would be, would be really past the point where they are able to, to, to deal with it or to support the, the separatist movement any longer. So uh, that's why I think the resistance, I mean, that was understood. That's understood by uh, Poroshenko and his puppets. In, um, Poroshenko himself is a puppet, but uh, the Kiev regime and their NATO, US, EU kind of backers and advisors, they all understood that. That's why there was so much resistance to allowing it and so much lies and manipulations to try and pitch it as a kind of a, an aggressive act to try and stop the Russians from allowing humanitarian aid in because... While it is humanitarian aid, it is, uh, uh, like I said, a kind of non-linear or asymmetric kind of uh, you know, response to the, what the Kiev forces are doing in eastern Ukraine, which is bombing the hell out of the population. Um, according to Western media, Russia aid doesn't uh, only stop, isn't uh, only summarized by humanitarian aid. Apparently, Russian troops, Russian armored vehicles, Across the border, some uh, fighters yeah. are being trained in Russia and come back uh, on the eastern Ukrainian territory. What's your take on this well, uh, hey, well, intervention of Russia? I, I would be surprised if that was not happening. Okay. <clears throat> what surprises me more is that they have not actually found any evidence of it yet. Now, in the middle of this convoy standoff, the convoy is on the Russian side of the border. There's a whole international press corps there. I mean, they're invited to go and inspect this convoy for themselves. They're milling around. They're tweeting live reports. And one day last week at the height of this, just before they went in, uh, I was watching what was being said. Uh, A couple of British journalists there first claimed that they saw that they they were were, uh, tracking 
Russian military uh, personnel, small smaller convoy, uh, driving along the border and going up to a hole in the fence and maybe going inside. They couldn't see how far they were quickly told to get lost. And this became a Guardian report that said, oh, Guardian, Guardian can confirm that a Russian military convoy crossed into Ukraine. Kiev then goes, oh, Guardian report confirmed it. Yes, yes, we confirmed that that military convoy that crossed into the border, uh, into Ukraine, was blown up by us. Yes, yes. Uh, our evidence is um, what was said on Twitter by those Guardian Twitter. and Telegraph journalists. I mean, how, how do they how do they get into this? We've got uh, a ca- basically they're trying to make it. You can see in real time they're forming a casus belli, a justification for war. Yeah. Based on I saw, he saw, maybe oh, we're not sure. Tweets. It comes back to tweets. Which is, of course, what the U.S. State Department said is all you need. Social media. But it's all, Social media and yeah, common sense. It's all completely manufactured, and they're, they've got to the point, they're so desperate where they are not holding back with just completely fabricating events, all in service to this ridiculous, you know, drive to demonize Russia. And it's not really, I don't think they're looking for a cause of spelling. It's all, it's basically propaganda. It's, it's negative propaganda, mm. and they're hoping that they're, their propaganda offensive will be enough to stop Russia because <clears throat> the Kiev regime uh, obviously isn't strong enough to even deal with some separatists in eastern Ukraine, never mind take Russia on. So there's no chance of uh, you know them trying to bait Russia into invading Ukraine so they can launch an attack on Russia because it would be wiped out. Um, and apparently NATO hasn't got the cojones for it either and the EU and the US don't have the cojones for it. Um, because Russia is a big country and it's not like Libya or Syria or something. They can't do what they did to these other smaller states, to Russia. So they're kind of stuck. So that's why we see this ridiculous and really aggressive and to the extent of just making things up, propaganda offensive, where they just, <clears throat> they're trying to stop Russia by words and by lies and by manipulations and hoping to get you know the force of public opinion in the West to stop Russia from doing what it's going to do. And it's not working because the Russians are just like, whatever, you know, you're all idiots. You know, Meanwhile, not- there are real consequences. The UN says about 2,000 people have been killed and up to 750,000 have fled into Russia. But actually, Russian sources say the death toll is closer to 10,000. Mm-hmm. 10,000. And this is just non-existent in Western reporting. They say that the figures are 10,000 among the civilian population? Yeah, dead. But what is the breakdown? Uh, yeah, it's mostly civilians. And what kind of civilians? On which side of the... <coughs> but there's only one side in the civilian camp. The thing the, is there are no... You're basically looking at two provinces of what is basically Russia. And who's killing them? Well, uh, up till now, I would have just simply said Kiev, Kiev. But... I've been seeing more and more reports about well, in the area using this term a third force. Yeah. There are reports of people who where they come in one day, storm at a village or town in one uniform, and then others recognize them wearing the opposite uniform, turning up at another slaughter somewhere else. 
What do you mean the opposite uniform? That's the well. Uh, one day they're wearing the Ukrainian army fatigues, and the right. next day they're wearing the Georgian ribbon, pretending to be rebels. Without, well, yeah, that. You've also got um, testimony from a Ukrainian army negotiator. He's a pretty senior guy. He's a Colonel General Vladimir Rubin. Yeah, Rubin. Yeah. Um, he's a negotiator. He's trusted by all people in the region because he negotiates the release of hostages and helps people find missing relatives and so on. So they talk to him and he gets information from them. Uh, so he has no interest in inventing this stuff. Um, he asks, who, who is doing this? Who is shelling civilian infrastructure? Because he's gonna, the Ukrainian army has no mandate, there's no orders to do so. Uh, he's asked here by a Ukrainian journalist for Ukrainskaya Pravda, who is this third party? He says, I don't know yet. We just call it the third party. Bezler, who's a, a Donbass rebel commander, also calls it a third party. They're searching for it. They're trying to find out where they're coming from. Um, he then comments, someone is not interested in ending this war. The journalist then goes, but Russia does not recognize this as a war. And he, he says in response, what does Russia have to do with this? The journalist asks, oh, you believe Russia is not involved in all this? And he says, to him, do you see any Russian troops here? Officially, no. You will also not see them unofficially, says the colonel of the Ukrainian army, because they are not here. If you have seen someone who's Russian in military, this does not imply Russian government involvement. So the, the uh, photo. Up, up and down the conflicts, people are saying similar things. So yes. the following question is, Quibono, uh, who benefits from pouring oil on the fire? What is this third party, according to you? Well, there was another clear case of third party involvement on the day this all blew up, on February 21st, when snipers of unknown origin shot people on both sides with barriers in Kiev. Yeah. So it's the same people, basically. Yeah. Who? Would it be the same people who blew down the MH17? Same source, yeah, ultimately. Well, I think to get a few snipers together doesn't take much uh, much deep black kind of operations. You just uh, hire a few mercenaries who shoot at people for money, you know, and that's pretty easily done, you know. But people who are obviously shooting um, uh, shooting at both sides of, barric- of, of the line, of the barricades, as, as you said, the people who wanted to... Uh, uh, push the the coup, uh, push the revolution, supposed Maidan revolution, um, and get rid of Yanukovych. Uh, you know that's that was a result of the bloodshed and the upping of the of the numbers of people killed. Uh, the result of that was Yanukovych had to leave. <clears throat> it, put, it put enough pressure on him to leave, and the people who wanted him to leave were the was the U.S. Department. Yeah, Victoria Newland uh, wanted a different government. Mm-hmm. In, so that's your answer, right. U.S. State Department. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, but now Yanukovych <coughs> has left, and you still have this third party being active. What is this, their objective now? Well, I mean, to civil warize the country. Well, this yeah. is what they did in Iraq. Radicalize. This whole thing smells of of the Kitson doctrine, the Frank Kitson <coughs> soft, uh, what do you call low intensity operation. Basically, you know, going around dressed as different groups and just mixing up trouble. To, for trouble's sake, in a certain sense, because they want the region destabilized. The goal is destabilization. Is you know that's that's their goal in a certain sense. And so this smells like that. This smells like you know either America or 
England or some sort of European American weird intelligence agency, yeah. UNTA, who, uh, who maybe Mossad's involved. Who knows? Who really cares at that level? Maybe it's maybe it's a bunch of free yeah. agents. Yeah, you have to you have to understand in this situation that the worse it gets, the better it is for Kiev uh, in, in eastern Ukraine. The more people are killed, the more bloodshed, the more violent it gets the better it is for, for Kiev because at that point, if it gets to the point where, you know, there's major, large number of people dead, uh, there'll be the force of the force of international opinion or, you know, the UN or someone will, you know, there'll be a lot of different avenues uh, by which force can be, uh, pressure can be put on, on, on the separatists and on Putin to resolve this, you know, um, and, even though it's nothing to do with them, basically. Right. Well, the killings it, aren't. No, the kill. No, the killings aren't to do with Putin, but they they can kill lots and lots of civilians mm-hmm. and claim that people have already been Putin. primed that it's all Putin's fault. Yes, it is. Right. Uh, all Putin's fault. <laughs> no, it's not all Putin's fault, obviously. But Putin is. Uh, I would say this is just my speculation, but I think it's reasonable enough to suggest that Putin is helping the separatists in eastern Ukraine. Right. Putin took Crimea. Putin didn't took Crimea because he didn't want NATO to come in and the uh, US State Department to come in and stage a coup and basically take Ukraine completely out of uh, Russia's sphere of influence, particularly in terms of I mean there's a big deal there with the with the with the gas supplies and I mean this is a real attack on Russia's economy by by staging a, a coup in Ukraine. And obviously on Crimea and the Black Sea Fleet, so he he secured the Black Sea Fleet. But uh, I mean, there's no reason not to think that he Putin isn't and Russia isn't interested in doing what they started out in terms of a reaction to the attempted the coup in, in Ukraine, which was to push back to stop them <coughs> just running in and, and running running over overrunning the place and, and doing what they wanted to do. Uh, so I mean, you can't separate the Eastern Ukrainian uh, rebellion from and Russia's reaction to the to the coup. That doesn't mean that, of course, the separatists are genuine, genuinely are uh, motivated to not want to be part of, you know, a country that was going to pull them being aligned with Russia, pull them away from Russia, and yeah. in the past bunch of Nazis, all that kind of stuff, past anti, anti-Russian speaking laws, all that kind of stuff. So there's a genuine motivation there for people to, ordinary people and uh, military people in Eastern Ukraine to react against that. But their interests and the interests of Russia coincide. So there's no reason to think that Russia would not in some way, being or in every way they can, be helping those people, as we've just seen they've been helping them with humanitarian aid. Uh, uh, but doing that, doing everything you can to help them, short of sending in Russian troops, which changes the whole situation, and, and you lose the moral high ground. You use, you lose your your narrative up to that point, which is where you just want peace. You know, there's this kind of other aspect along with that um, of what's going on in Ukraine is kind of the typical methodology used by the West throughout his throughout throughout its history, which is kind of based off this Pavlovian trans-marginal inhibition that's shocking the population really, really bad. 
as they're going to move in with the history rewriters and be able to produce a narrative for the people to rally behind. And, and the Americans obviously think that they're going to come in and they're going to dislodge the Ukraine completely from the Russian sphere, uh, torture the population, trans-marginal inhibition affy them, and then present the narrative of it's all Russia's fault. And of course, they'll be so traumatized that they won't really be able to think critically anyway. And they'll forget all of the times they saw the you know, the, the, the Kiev flag being flown during the bombings, and suddenly they'll immediately remember, oh, yeah, there were Russian troops here, they, and they beat me. And you, you see that kind of stuff happen uh, after these types of situations. The narrative gets produced, and suddenly people start having memories of things happening that they didn't have memories when they were asked, you know, like a month ago. And suddenly, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, I saw that. Oh, oh yeah. The, and Totally. So, and I think that Russia at the same time realizes this game, and I think that they're playing a game where they're going to try. They're going to let the, the West basically do this, and they're going to try to come in with, a, with an opposing narrative. And they're working towards that now with this humanitarian aid stuff. Mm-hmm. They want to make sure that they're positioned with their own narrative when this stuff... I mean, as horrible as that sounds, strategically speaking, I mean, it, it's, one, it's one theory that fits the facts of why it's such chaotic violence and and so much pointless chaotic violence, and, and how can they all be so incompetent? And really, you know, it's just really kind of a confusing situation unless you think of it as like one of those sort of shock, shock doctrine type of things or something. You know? Yeah. So if you follow your reasoning, the battle is not only in Lugansk or Donetsk or Gaza, the battle, the most important battle maybe is in people's mind. Oh, and uh, those um, puppet masters know that the main fight is there in our minds. And Joe was mentioning that Putin is, or Russia is probably uh, helping uh, uh, the rebels in eastern Ukraine. And how can you explain this asymmetry? In, uh, on one side, you have the U.S. that for years and years has been supporting military, all kinds of regimes, usually the, the worst ones. And everybody agreed with that, obviously. And today, you have this massive mediatic uproar against Putin, who would, because there's no evidence apparently, who would be supporting the rebels. How do you reconcile this? Uh, you reconcile it by saying, do what I say and not what I do. It's double standards. It's, it's uh, America rules supreme, as uh, has done for you know, maybe almost 100 years. And um, it... it it's exceptional. It has the right to impose its its policies and its doctrines and its beliefs on other people, and but other people are not allowed to do the same. Right. I mean, it's a dictatorship. It's a global dictatorship, and it's uh, what I say goes. And if you give me any back chat, I'll you know send in my send in my send in my bombers. I'm always a big fan of saying hypocrisy is not a crime. It's a way of life. And for Americans, as a general rule, and for all empires hypocrisy is, is how they work. And, and people actually really love it. It's that cognitive dissonance type of stuff. It's the, it's the dissonance. It's like you have to wonder if they seek it so often. They just love it. Everyone talks about cognitive dissonance. It makes them uncomfortable. I think no. I think they're cognitive dissonance junkies because you see somebody in a, in a five-minute conversation, they can, they can hold 15, 20 completely dissonant ideas at the same time. And you're like, what are you, some kind of moron? But I mean, but they love it. I mean, they get off on just being completely stupid. Before you mentioned uh, transmarginal inhibition and the shock doctrine, 
according to some rebel leaders, there have been cases of uh, phosphorus bombs used by the Ukrainian army, fragmentation bombs, torture, even manhunt for sale on uh, social medias. Um, All the oldest sins in the newest way. Mm. Is it uh, yeah. Russian propaganda? Mm. No. Is it a reality? No, it's a real reality. It's opportunities it's real. of war. Yeah. I saw an interview, not on film, there was a transcript of an interview with a Donbass guy. I think he was in one of the militias. and He seemed pretty level-headed in describing the kind of things he saw. I mean, he's seen... He said he's, he's seen Polish people, for example, among others coming from abroad, who are having an absolute blast of a time. Guys are shooting people in the head as they cycle to work and, and laughing about it. I mean, mm-hmm. when you add in that mix of creating the conditions for attracting certain types of people, mm-hmm. uh, you've got like, it's, it's, it's very similar to what's happening in Middle East, in that respect as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, people shouldn't underestimate the extent uh, that are the number of uh, essentially psychopathic, almost severely pies <coughs> individuals are in the world today. You just look at Western society and the kind of people, the kind of values that are disposed and the kind of people that, that kind of creates. And if you have this, you know, element of uh, psychopaths in there, there's a lot of them. And when you create an avenue or a uh, an arena. For those people to just walk in and pick up a gun and start shooting other people—that's what psychopaths, you know, kind of. That's one of the things that they get off on. They certainly mm, right. like, you know, playing soldiers, and for them, it's playing. Hey, yeah. I shot some people. Isn't that great? You know, that people need to understand the reality of that, and that there are many, many people, and that that also applies to what's going on in Iraq and Syria. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, yeah, the, I mean, the first American that died in Eastern Ukraine. Yeah, and thinking, who, what, what? He was a former major. He gave an interview to Vice News like a couple of months ago. Oh, I mean, they basically gave him a free pass, you know, that he was there for all these righteous reasons. And some of the quotes were like, "I just, I just hate Russians." Yeah. And why? Just just damn commies! He was at the shoot, shoot some damn commies. Yeah. How did he die? Uh, I'm not sure. <clears throat> he got killed by death. By <clears throat> he got he, killed. By, he got killed till he died from it. I think he's a guy who died before. Oh no, no, maybe I mix up. There's this guy who died because he was about to rape a a girl, and uh, the, the, the father, grandfather, 82 years old, shot him. That's someone else. That's someone who that's was a, a, a Ukrainian leader a, in, uh, in Maidan. That's the Maidan, yeah. Some, yeah. some, some right sector dude at Maidan was killed recently because uh, he was involved in some attempted rape, and yeah, some yeah. grandfather came out with a shotgun and... Finish them. Good. Well, it's, one less asshole in the world. It's kind of interesting. I mean, what these people that we're talking about, that, you know, the, the irregular army members uh, in many different places that we mentioned in Ukraine, in Iraq and Syria, and being in Lebanon, um, these are essentially mercenaries. And it's basically a situation of history repeating itself because right. at the end of the Roman Empire, towards the end of the Roman Empire, there was a lot of mercenaries used by the Roman uh, the Roman Empire to do their dirty work. You know, and these are people they pick up along the way as the Roman Empire goes around invading and conquering different tribes and, and countries. 
there are many people there who say, hey, you guys look like you're kind of on the winning side. Can I join? You know, yeah, you just defeated me, so obviously you're better than me. Can I, can I join the winning side? And they pick up lots of kind of, and these are obviously the people who have, by that definition, or don't have, you know, a lot of necessarily honor or integrity or national pride or, right. you know, scruples, let's say. They'll just, they'll, they're guns for hire, essentially. And you pick up a lot of them along the way, and that's what America has done. America has picked up a lot over the past 30, 40, 50 years. And those are the people it, it uses now, you know. Um, it uses, we were talking earlier on about um, this silly idea. It's kind of a silly idea of fourth, generational, fourth generation warfare. You know, some guy came up with some, you know, suit in, in Washington or something, came up with this idea of um, four generations of warfare, the first one being, you know, spears and source and, and then kind of, you know, uh, gunpowder weapons, that kind of thing. And then moving into more advanced technological Armor. armored weapon, weapons and planes and missiles. And fourth generation is, uh, you don't use that at all. Nation states don't use their militaries to invade. They use proxy armies within the country that they want to attack. Or they bring mercenaries right, into the country. New. It's not new, no, no. It's, it's as old as history, but this is what he's talking about, you know. Uh, and this, but this is what it's what's going on, and uh, this is how the U.S. generally speaking wages war. They, they they don't use their own military; they use, you know. There is there is an interesting point to this. It is universally accepted and written about, especially by Machiavelli. That the worst decision a state can ever ever make is to use mercenaries, because if they suck you in the long run. And if they're good, they will turn on you in the long run. Yep, absolutely. And, and look at this ISIS stuff. It's obvious that they started this ISIS thing, right? And I bet you this ISIS thing got right away from them because you've got a, a big group of psychopaths. And they're getting all the guns and having all the fun. And then all of a sudden they decide, hey, why don't we really do this caliphate thing instead of fake doing it? Yeah. And then all of a sudden one's like, hold on, we didn't really mean for it to happen. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and now they're like, oh, Stabbed in the back by our own mercenaries. And in Ukraine, you have this very asymmetric warfare. You have a regular army, Ukrainian army, with mercenaries, with armored vehicles. On the other side, you have a few people who took arms to defend the country, their their roots, their family. <coughs> so it was a open and close case, apparently. Such so much asymmetry, and apparently the rebels are have been winning the recent uh, fights. So. Would it be an illustration of what you said? Uh, on one side, you have a regular army, but with people who are not motivated, who have no cause, no vision, no, no motivation, no, no paychecks, and no guns. You gotta uh, understand how important you gotta you gotta understand how important the paycheck aspect of any military is, and that's probably why this whole situation in Ukraine wasn't settled a while ago, is because Kiev just they just do not have the money to pay these guys. They don't want to go. They don't want to go around doing any of this stuff. They don't want to go into the bush and in the forest and trekking around with holes in their socks and their shoes falling apart and no toilet paper mm -hmm. because the commissariat ran out of money and no good food to eat. They're out there starving and hungry and cold. Well, that's actually um, that's the reality of the situation. When uh, this year, uh, like we were talking about, um, did we mention? No, okay, well, maybe we mentioned about Poroshenko having the, I think it was today, Poroshenko, the puppet president in uh, in Ukraine, reinstated um, military. a national military parade uh, in Kiev. 
you know, so they faded their whatever they had to pull out of the closet and dust the cobwebs off it and give it a paint job, uh, you know, to instill national pride and, you know, Ukraine, you know, together, strong military, defend ourselves, blah, blah, blah. Um, because they, those parades, military parades, have been banned by his ousted predecessor, um, uh, Yanukovych, since, 2000, since, he came, since he became president in 2009. So this is the first one since 2009, the first military parade in Kiev since 2009. But uh, the important point there is that Yanukovych had banned them. And my interpretation of that is that that was, you know, doing what the kind of Russians, you know, thing going on. Uh, the Russians didn't want Kiev to be, you know, kind of rabble-rousing or, you know, you know, whipping the population up into a kind of nationalistic fervor with military parade. That's kind of what it does. It makes people feel, you know, we're a single nation and we're going to protect ourselves and blah, blah. He didn't want that. Putin didn't want that. And there was no point in it either. But uh, in in line with that, the Ukrainian military was more or less just left to rot. Yeah. Uh, and I think it even that even goes back before 2009. But certainly for the past uh, four or five years, there hasn't really been any significant military uh, in terms of training or regular regular movements or anything like that and per- or purchases of military equipment uh, in, in quite a long time. So when and then Russia responded and it looked like uh, Ukraine, uh, Kiev was going to have to call on a Ukrainian military, they were like... Uh, most well, of them can, defect. Can you give us a couple of years? Because <laughs> uh, we don't really have one, not the proper one, really, you know. So um, that's why, that's part of the reason why I think that they're, the separatists are doing, have been doing so well right. in, yeah, terms exactly. of, in terms of holding the, the ground. But today, also talking with Poroshenko, he announced that he was going to spend uh, $3 billion. don't know where he's getting it from. He's probably kind of one of those things, here's some money and give it back to me. Uh, he's probably getting uh, $3 billion from the U.S. But he's only got promises of money because there's no money. Yeah. Well, he claims he's going to spend $3 billion on uh, improving the military over the next <laughs> few years. Uh, whether or not that happens, but that's the intention because, because, because he says we're going to face a threat to Ukraine for the foreseeable future. You know, we're going to be on, a, on, a, on alert of, what's, what's against the, what's, Russia. What's the size of the American military budget? It's like trillion or something? It's more than me to the budget of all the other countries Correct. together. I mean, more. he's going to spend $3 billion on the military. That's like a drop in yeah. the bucket. Yeah. You can't pay for anything. You can, you can buy like two or three planes. Doesn't, a, doesn't the average fighter jet cost 350 to $400 million? Bouncy ones, yeah. That's what it is. You know, the G, I mean, geez, he can buy like four planes. He can get Russian, ones a, lot, he can get Russian ones a lot cheaper. <laughs> if he was smart, he'd take, he'd take uh, the U.S.'s $3 billion and give it to Russia and say, here, ship me out. And shipping is uh, cheaper, probably. It's nearby. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. There's all sorts of free delivery. Common sense, though, I mean, you know, yeah. that you don't need to get from uh, social media. That's one of those loans <laughs> that never really moves. Like they say you've got $3 billion and he says, okay, give me a couple of planes or some bombs, and then they do. So it's one of those mm-hmm. It's a loan, these guys. Yeah. These but that's what they do all the time. I mean, you see the way these transactions go uh, with, with the West and with the U.S. in particular. And they'll give countries loans of money to buy their products, products their, their, like uh, their, their weapons. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it's like 
I owe I, I my never, soul I, to the company store. Maybe it's a, maybe it's accountancy. I was never good at accountancy, but maybe there's some way you can write it off or something like that. But I mean, there must be some sense in it. But on paper or just you know on face uh, on the face of it, it doesn't really make much sense. Give somebody you know three billion dollars and then say no, give it back to me. I'll give you some planes. Just give me the planes. Why why do the money transaction? But it has to be accounted for. All the hills that song, you know, like Tennessee Ernie Ford was written about that whole concept of the company store where you you didn't actually get paid any money. You were paid vouchers that you could use at the company store to get your food and your clothes and all oh, that stuff yeah, yeah. and take okay. it back home, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of how the, the, the West works with their client states. They never actually give them any money. They just give them vouchers for getting goods. Yeah, buy um, our weapons. And buy our weapons. But in exchange, you know, there's certain contractual I, obligations on Ukraine's part to, yeah, pretty know, much toe the line. But this is like keep, that economic hitman. He kind of talks about something similar, I mean. It does yeah. take a little bit of a mental leap to get there, but it is essentially the same idea. Yeah, they the U.S. dollar itself, arguably, is a voucher. Yeah. Uh, we, we mentioned uh, increasing casualties in Ukraine in order to influence the uh, international committee, uh, community, the U.N. in particular. And there are two reports I, I stumbled upon, and uh, that left me puzzled. Um, first, the U.N. condemned the Ukraine army for killing civilians. And, uh, and second, the CFR, the Council of Foreign Relations, which is rather pro-Aukish and pro-West, stated that uh, the one responsible for the war in Ukraine was NATO and its desire to enlarge its territory. So how would you explain those two statements? The, from what we've been truth? saying from the, the beginning is that right now there's a war over pretty much Europe. And Europe is starting to crack and fracture away from the West, realizing that what's going on is not in their interest. And there's an internal battle going on in the EU right now, and there has been since the, shanks, the Russian sanctions were announced, which is um, to have one faction of people saying, hold on a second, this is really not the way we want, this is not where we want to be, and this is not the way we want to play it. And then, of course, you have like the Brussels guys saying, oh, Russia's evil, we need more sanctions, let's let's throw ourselves on our swords type of thing. And there's a lot of politicians now who are really saying, hold on a second, I don't even have a sword. I'm going to have to go buy one to throw myself on it now. <laughs> and so I think that this is the source of it. And you always see that, that, it's, that this type of stuff bubbles up inside of a society, testing the water to see what kind of strong reaction is against those types of statements. And if the, the reactions are very strong, then more of those statements come out and eventually you kind of end up with a kind of fractured Europe. And hopefully all of hopefully all of Europe will wake up, smell what the rock is cooking, and and decide that they don't even want to be involved. They don't have to side with Russia. All they have to do, it's kind of like Caesar said, you know, those who who are not my enemy, you know, they're with me just by not being my enemy. And Russia, I mean, and the Europe really needs to sit down and say, hold on a second, this is between two people who are not involved. <laughs> We just don't even want to be involved with this stuff. Whatever, stop it, you know, and let 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 Russia and America duke it out. And in that way, we know what the end result will be. Like the same thing between Carthage and Rome. Basically, America is on the decline, and Russia will be the next big superpower, and it'll be all dandy for about ten to fifteen years until they start throwing their way around and Putin dies, and then then we'll all be sitting here. Our children will be sitting here around the table talking about all oh, that damn Russia. They keep going around starting all these wars, you know, but global politics, man. It's this giant, giant circle, circle for like 10,000 years, this circle of empires. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I don't know. There's a pattern with Russia. They've never, even when they had a dominant position, they've never exerted it in the way that Western liberal empires have. More cooperative, more win-win. Oh, yeah. They've always, we've always more or less played fair. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's two sides. One side says this, one side says that. Who do I believe? I don't know. I don't know if they were good, and I don't know if they were bad. I, I read some stuff about Peter the Great, and he was pretty awesome, but at the same time, he made a beard tax, so I have to wonder about a guy. <laughs> I mean, so at the same time, I'm like, hold on a second. I would not have wanted to be in Russia back then because I have a beard, and I would have been taxed for my goddamn beard. So, That's a major point. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sitting there looking at this situation. You would have got, at the progressive scale, you would have got taxed hard. Yeah, I know. I would have got taxed hard for my very large beard here. Yeah, it seems to me that... Uh... To understand what's going on today, you have to look back a little bit at the British Empire. Um, there were several different empires. Okay, we'll leave out the Spanish Empire going back a bit further than that, but let's take it from you know, the modern history type thing. Um, the British Empire was the most, the biggest empire. Um, you know, the sun never set on it, and the blood never dried, as you say. But um, the Americans inherited or took over from the British Empire. I mean, there were, there were empires around at the same time as the British Empire, but they were never quite as aggressive. They never had, by any by any standards, the same uh, scope. And when the uh, the handover was kind of done, which was kind of in the beginning, around the start of the 20th century, with the U.S. kind of came online and kind of took over after the kind of first and second world wars and the the other empires kind of faded uh, and the british kind of handed over to the us the us picked up where, where the where the us picked up where the british left off uh so around that time around the turn of the 20th century uh um, Rus- the russian empire was done for as well uh by way of the, the kind of bolshevik Revolution and the creation of the the kind of communism essentially in the Soviet Union, and that's the only Russia is really the only uh, country, and so obviously a very big country uh, in the world that remains kind of unconquered. It was yeah. conquered by Bolshevism and by communism, uh, which was largely a, a kind of a the Byron's idea that is ultimately just. Horrible. Yeah, it was largely promoted by by the West yeah. at the time as a way to neutralize Russia, yes. but then they left the job kind of undone. Mm. So today, what we're seeing is is an attempt to kind of finish the job, right. uh, to complete the, the domination of the globe by the Anglo-Saxon right. uh, white man's burden empire type thing, you know. And um, it should have been a done deal, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, quote unquote. And uh, the venture capitalists, vultures, vultures came in. And Russia was meant to be kind of divided up economically uh, and owned by the West. But you had this kind of phenomenon of Putin, and he is obviously a phenomenon, uh, the way people are talking about him these days, and particularly the Western media. Uh, he came along and decided to change, change the script a little bit, you know, and that's what we're dealing with now. So pretty much everything that the U.S. is doing 
and this includes the you know even the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and the stuff going on in the Middle East. That is all ultimately um, directed at containing Russia. You know, I mean, when the Iraq War was launched, it was all about uh, the protesters in the streets were talking about no war for oil. You know, people had this idea that it was for uh, securing oil resources, uh, Iraq's oil resources and stuff. Yeah, they were pretty much already secured. Um, Okay, getting rid of Saddam Hussein was theoretically something they wanted to do, but uh, the bigger goal was to secure that part of the world against Russia because people need to get a map of the world you know, and keep it on a wall beside them and with this kind of idea in mind and just look at what has happened and look at where Russia is and look at where the Middle East is and and realize what would happen naturally in terms of uh, economic uh, partnerships and exchange and the flow of goods and resources, etc., if it was left to its own devices, you know, Eurasia is a contiguous landmass yeah. and it's the wealthiest uh, kind of portion of, of the world. Um, and if that the, the countries in that in that Eurasian landmass were all kind of more or less working together economically, etc., then the United States, the little US of A, 5,000 miles across the ocean, would be kind of sidelined. It's like, you know, you're not really, yeah, I mean, really sure, involved. you're a country, but why don't you just hang out with the South Americans? You know, you're, all, you're all over there, and we can do some trade and business and stuff, but, you know, we've got a lot of stuff going on here in the Eurasian landmass. So, you know, and that is just like, that makes the, the empire builders and the, and the cycles in, in the U.S. just see, see red. Like, I mean, it's like, what do you mean? You know, we own this place, you know? And, but by, simply by, by fate or by, the, by geography, essentially, uh, that's the way it should be. You know, that's the way the world's made. Who, you know, yeah. God decided that, you know, because he made the world, right? So uh, there's geographic realities that the U.S. Is, has always fight. been struggling against and right. fighting against and trying to continue on the kind of uh, the aggressive, bloody imperialism that, the, that the, the Brits were able to get away with in a kind of darker, less enlightened age, let's say. They're trying to do that and continue that on in, a, in what is supposedly a more enlightened age. and Maybe it's not so much more enlightened from a moral point of view, but certainly it's more enlightened from an information point of view in terms of the access to information that people have about what's going on, and that's what makes it much more difficult, and that's why they're fighting this battle and losing it. Yeah, that's the point I wanted to uh, uh, to deal with now. Uh, Jay mentioned the, the position of Europe, and it's perfectly logical that Europe join the Asian wagon. Russia, as you mentioned, and China, and India, the rising stars, a lot of resources, economic uh, growth, and history, mm-hmm. and uh, mentality. Nonetheless, the European leaders that are probably pragmatic and led by greed, profit, money, they don't look towards the East, and they still give allegiance to the U.S. empire, which is declining, which is collapsing. Everybody right. can see that. So how can you explain it? Is it because of bribe? Is it because of fear of the U.S. Army? Is it because of maybe mentality and they've been groomed as a Chicago school brainchild for generations? Why those pragmatic politicians don't, don't shift? Because they, All of the above. Because they recognize one <clears throat> fundamental truth. The majority of the people in the world are not white Anglo-Saxon slash whatever they are in Europeans. 
most of them are brown or yellow, and they are terrified. They are t- they're racists. I mean, most white people, especially white, the white West is, is a racist, violent dominator of the rest of the world, which is predominantly filled with other ethnicities and other cultures and other civilizations, and they have been meddling and repressing and telling them how to live their lives and do their stuff, and they know for a fact or at least they believe. I don't know if it's actually a fact because I think we've realized from from history that actually these other ethnic populations are a lot more peaceful than the White West. But they know that when they lose their grip, it's like having a tiger by the tail. If they let go, the tiger's going to turn. And they're afraid of that. They're terrified of places like India that the British Empire horribly dominated. <clears throat> they're afraid of places like uh, the Middle East the Arabs, who they have horrifyingly dominated, murdered, killed, and China, who they infected with opium to steal all their gold and silver in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they are afraid that all of these people are going to have a cultural memory of all of the, the horrible things that they've been doing over the last 150, 200 years, and that they're going to come back and get their comeuppance. So, I mean, they're terrified. Well, the, come, the comeuppance they would get would simply be the natural order of things establishing right. re-establishing itself, and the natural order is, like I said, this kind of reason that mass all kind of working together. Right. You know, I mean, Islamic fundamentalism, uh, as, in, as, as, as in Islamic terrorism, was created and uh, promoted and put into place and put into action ultimately to contain Russia. Right. 9/11 was done to contain Russia. That's from a foreign policy point of view. Uh, obviously, there are benefits from a domestic point of view, right. where you can, uh, you know, have this terrorist threat that uh, keeps the people at home down and controlled and afraid and, you know, willing to accept, you know, militarization and draconian laws and stuff. But ultimately, there's, I mean, there's a line going from uh, Afghanistan, where the U.S. as Zbigniew uh, Brzezinski stated officially that uh, were the U.S. armed and trained and created, got a bunch of fundamentalist uh, Muslims from various different countries, concentrated them in Afghanistan to bait uh, the Russians into, the Soviets into Afghanistan to give them their Vietnam, to basically, you know, bog them down in a protracted 10-year war that they ultimately lost. Uh, And those Muslim extremists, that fought against the Russians and won essentially because they were armed and funded by the U.S. and you know they uh, they became so at that time they were our freedom fighters actually I think Reagan at the time called them freedom fighters and shook their hands and slapped them in the back and stuff go get them boys you know get the commies so that was obviously directed at Russia at that time then those same fundamentalists were turned into Al Qaeda uh, and now they're not our freedom fighters anymore, they're terrorists and they're against us. And you have things like the World Trade, World Trade Center bombing in 1983. You have embassy bombings in, in, in Nairobi, uh, in Kenya, uh, later in the 90s, and then leading up to 9-11, which launched uh, the U.S. military into Afghanistan again to attack the jihadis that they had created to fight the Russians but now they're their enemies, so they have to go and get them in Afghanistan and occupy Afghanistan, which used to be on Russia's border, but is more or less 
uh, still on Russia's yeah, border because it's on the it's on the border of the Istans, which were previously a part of Russia and which several of which are now um, aligned with Russia, and also in Iraq. If you just, again, if you look at a map, you know where Russia comes down through Georgia there and meets kind of uh, on, on the side the Caspian and the Black Sea. You have Turkey and then you have Syria, Iraq, Iran. All of these countries right below Russia would all be natural trading partners right down into Saudi Arabia. Right. You know, these would all be natural trading partners with Russia. And that's why the entire war on terror was exported and projected overseas. And Muslim terrorism was exported and projected overseas so that the U.S. could get their military in there to effectively stir things up and make sure that Russia did not, uh, you know, exert its natural... Uh, influence and, and, and control of that region, you know, well, along wanted, with other. They wanted countries. a legitimate reason to post their soldiers, large numbers of yeah. soldiers, uh, <coughs> along the Russian southern flank, basically, Absolutely. right where they could be within striking distance, Absolutely. which they are. And, can, and, and kind of uh, simultaneous with that, you have uh, NATO expansion in, in Europe, yeah. uh, the European Union expanding eastwards right up to Russia's border, taking all of the European countries and putting you know, making them all members of NATO, basically right. a military organization, yeah. and pointing, you know, uh, missile uh, bases or creating missile bases in, in Eastern European countries, all pointed at Russia. It all conspires around Russia, you know? So that's uh, it's pretty sad, you know? It's got this thing about Russia. They don't like them. Because they just haven't been militarily defeated. They're kind of like the... They're not playing. Uh, you know, they're like, maybe just... They haven't bound down and uh, they haven't kneeled before Zod. Yeah, you know, in a certain sense. Kneel <laughs> <laughs> before Zod. <laughs> Come, son of Jarrell, <laughs> kneel before Zod. Do you think there's something about the ideology? Me mentioned the, the way Russians address trade and economic relations, this notion of uh, win-win, collaboration, and non-invasion, non-imperialistic force. Uh, in the Third Reich, first target was not the Jews, but the Slavs. So, do you think <clears throat> there's something specific to the Slav or Russian ideology that the psychopathic WASP leaders want to eradicate? Yeah, it's their lack of psychopath- psychopathy. Well, it's their their fundamental <laughs> belief. I mean, they're very religious, you know, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. So, I mean, and from what I know of Eastern Orthodox, which, of course, is not very much. I tried to actually find more out about it, but you can't get too many details. They do seem to be a lot more aligned with the original Christian doctrine of, you know, peace, prosperity, charity, and, and things like that. So, and, and, and what few Russians I've ever talked to about the Eastern Orthodox thing, they, they do kind of have more Christian than Christian, because my experience is like Southern Baptists, where they're like gigantic hypocrites when it comes to Christianity. I mean, that's my experience. My experience with Russian Orthodox people is that they're a little bit more Christian, actually, to be quite honest. So, I mean, maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. I, I think I think there's two things. I don't think it's too extraordinary. I think Russians simply have... Uh, they have what a lot of other countries and people in other countries have, which is basic uh, human decency and respect for, um, you know, noble ideals and values, i.e. Uh, not kind of uh, conquering and invading other countries and killing the population and exploiting the workers and all this kind of stuff. I mean, any normal person, when they saw that happening, would say, um, do you do that to me? 
it's, it's not extraordinary. You don't have to trump up human. some kind of superhuman Russian values. Uh, other people uh, feel the same way, but in other countries. But the difference with Russia here, I suppose, is that Russia is in a position, and has always been in a position because of its size, to say no to that kind of ideology and be able to back it up, be able to stand their ground. Other countries weren't able to stand their ground. They may still hold those values, but they can't really do anything about it. The uh, force with which uh, the U.S. kind of imposed its reign on the rest of the world, uh, they, other countries couldn't really you know, take a stand against it, whereas Russia seems to think anyway that it can. Um, and yet Russia suffered 80-some 80 years of hypocrisy of yeah. the most extreme Maybe form. it's the most extreme form. 50 million people yeah. Maybe slaughtered. Maybe it's because of No other country has suffered like that. Yeah. Maybe it's because of that that they have a little bit more empathy. As well, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're well, basically they were like so before. You see, Soros... Part of the problem here is that people think Soros Russia was the mother of all evils. In fact, it's the direct opposite. Just as Russia today is portrayed in the opposite light to what it's really like, <coughs> so was SARS Russia. Yeah. People at the time portrayed it as backwards, oh, serfdom, therefore they're all slaves. Actually, many people studied and really looked at the conditions for ordinary Russians in, say, 19th century SARS Russia. And they all agree that, without doubt, they were the most free economically, politically, socially, of all the so-called Western nations. But when you read the history textbooks, apparently the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, the French Revolution 1718, or Comrade Revolution in, in England, was an emancipation by the people, for the people. They got rid of oppression yeah, from the nobility they, and from the, the church. The, the Bolsheviks, to justify their... Uh, destruction of Russia had to rewrite history completely to, in order to present what happened there as an emancipation. In fact, it was the complete opposite. It was the enslavement of Russians. They were doing really, really well under Tsarist Russia. And it, it, the pattern that goes back even... I, I don't know how strongly you can support that, but R- Russia is a thousand years old in some form or another. You know, the U.S. is like, what, 300 years old? Even Britain, in its current form, is not as old as Russia. Yeah. So, yeah, Jason mentioned orthodoxy. There may be something to that. Um, It's probably going to go to another level below religion, per se. I think, given, again, the geographic location, they were subject to far more invasions in that thousand-year history than anyone else can boast. I mean, Mongol hordes repeatedly, repeatedly. Um, Then conflict with the Khazar Empire, Mm -hmm. which gives us most of today's Jews, so that was horrific. And then uh, repeated attacks from the south and then, of course, from the east. Uh, People say, well, poor Poland has been invaded by Russia. No, uh, the Polish and Lithuanian and beyond them other Western countries have attacked Russia Napoleon. so many times. Uh, Russia, is always, Russia in some form or another has always come out of it mm. without being... Um, I'm, gonna, I'm not sure if I can 
without being completely polarized, something seems to survive in it that resists the total polarization. They still have a better, uh, let's just say at a psychological level, a better instinctive repulsion towards oligarchy rule. Uh, perhaps. Well, a greater yeah. sense of fairness. I, I, I don't know. I'm I think not it's, sure. I think it's it's a kind of a maybe just a result of just fate or circumstances that, that occurred because like you're talking about under czarist rule, you know, it was kind of like it's been described as a workers' paradise. But that was around a time when there was a lot of workers' rights movements uh, across Europe and in the U.S. and stuff. That was a something that came out of the kind of industrial revolution where people were being treated badly in factories and all that kind of stuff, and you had this workers' rights movement. And that was, um, you know, uh, in, in Russia, that kind of took hold, or and, and the czars kind of allowed it or accepted it or allowed it to happen, essentially. Uh, I suppose then, after the, the Second World War, um, Russia was kind of like selected in a certain sense for for the I mean they adopted the kind of Marxist communist ideas because those ideas were already I mean they were in other countries as well but maybe they were stronger in Russia so when the kind of decision came to kind of divide the world between two ideologies Russia was the natural choice to be on the on the workers rights uh, proletariat uh, common man side you know and um, by doing that, by, by imposing this kind of, uh, however that happened, I mean, you can go back to Marx, Marx was Jewish, where does he get all his ideas from? Well, you know, I mean, these were just theories and stuff. He went a bit far with them, I suppose. But yeah. the idea was our, the whole com- the communist or Marxist and workers' rights ideas was a reaction to the abuses of the factory owners and the elite uh, that came out of the kind of industrial revolution where workers were being taken off their land and exploited in factories, right? So um, that that the fact that that ethos existed, that it came out of conditions of the day by the abuses of the elite, for whatever reason, it kind of embedded itself in, in more recent history in Russia. And then a wall came down between the two. One was capitalist, you know, uh, and, and one was communist and workers' well, rights and everybody's free and stuff. It was embedded through terror. There was no, there was no demand for it in Russia at the time. What? The, the, these ideas. Well, you mean, they, they, they laughed at them because they already had it. Well, exactly, but it was there already is what I'm saying. Yeah. That's why it was chosen to, to where, it, where it was fertile ground for the implementation okay. of Marxist and communist ideas and to try and put them into practice in this kind right. of exaggerated, ridiculous way, you know? And then they bring down the, coal, the, the Iron Curtain and, and, the, and the Cold War, and the West then created its own problem in the sense that they locked Russia off from... I mean, it's in, during the Cold War was the time when uh, capitalists in the West spread their, their infection around the world. But they excluded Russia from that because Russia had already been... I mean, decided, okay, you're, you've taken the other path. So now they're having to deal with it. They're trying to have to, like I said before, finish the job. How do we, okay, now the you know, commies have gone and all that kind of stuff, let's get back on this Russia thing. This should have happened a long time ago. You know, I mean, who created, who, who, who created the Cold War? Who pulled down the Iron Curtain? I mean, 
you know, Russia was excluded, you know, the Soviet Union was excluded from what the West was doing all those years, which was spreading capitalism and, you know, vulture capitalism. And, uh, I think maybe, though, uh, it was an accident. Well, that's, um, that's what I keep calling it, fate or just circumstance. Yeah, you know? there's a bit of fate and circumstance in there because even a lot of people kind of point out that that communism was designed for England and the West. That it was designed for massive. It should have taken off in America. It should have taken off in England. But instead, it took off in China. And I mean, even Marx apparently at one point mm. said, uh, "This would never work for the Chinese. They're too agrarian." Mm. Um, and it took off in the countries. I think uh, Russia was also quite agrarian at the same yeah. time. Mm. And and it wasn't designed for that. True. What you so, mentioned is that Karl Marx's ideology was based on the proletariat, people working in factories, mm-hmm. and. Uh, well, giving yeah. rise to a new ideology in reaction to the oppression from industrialists. Mm-hmm. And paradoxically, it took hold in a country that was mostly agrarian. Which is... But the ideology of Karl Marx was not uh, actually limited to uh, one industrial country. One industrial country was a, a world revolution mm-hmm. where workers allegedly would take power. Okay. And, uh, but the problem there then is industrialization. The very mm-hmm. fact of industrialization, the fact of, of technology, right. technological advancement, right. is what screwed things over. Because otherwise, people would just live in agrarian societies. Everyone would have their little piece of land, theoretically, mm-hmm. or could have their little piece of land and look after themselves, care for their families, for their communities. And there's no, you know, we'd have a more peaceful world. Of course, we have another peaceful world. Even before technology and the industrial revolution, there was loads of wars. So that's not, that doesn't, doesn't fit either, you know. Well, when it comes to, to the situation, I think it was, it was, I mean, if you look at how China got infected with communism, you would kind of understand uh, why it's really kind of interesting. The Ruskies, um, right? Well, no, it wasn't the Ruskies. It was the the British, actually, and the way that they treated the, the Chinese at the time with the opium trade. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the Chinese were found themselves completely paralyzed against the industrial nations because they hadn't developed an industry. Mm-hmm. And they decided that they were going to start importing works from the West so that they could learn how to deal with the enemy, basically. Mm-hmm. And one of the books that they imported <laughs> was, was from, from this communist uh, mm. type of writers. And so then it kind of infected them. And it was kind of a virulent idea um, that could take over the minds of people who um, were not pragmatic enough to realize that it couldn't work on a large scale. And I think the a same or similar thing happened in Russia, that it started to take off as in the West said, oh, hey, this is a great opportunity. Let's do this. And they supported it just to disrupt it. They never probably imagined that it would be so successful. And then once it was successful, they said, work done. Excellent. Let's do the Iron Curtain thing. Okay, cool. This is how we've split everybody. We've got rid of Russia because now it's ruled by a bunch of incompetent pathocrats in this communist system that will never work, you know, and, and they looked at it as a great opportunity. Um, and now they're all of a sudden they're saying, holy shit, this didn't work. Uh, we've got to do something about Russia. Mm-hmm. We thought we had this handled. But it turns out that communism fell, and now the Russians are proving to be better capitalists than the capitalists. Yeah, uh, they're doing it the kind of right way, you know. They're doing it the right they've way. Maybe merged a little bit of both. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. You know, they've, they've kind of merged the ideas, and so the West is really like, "Holy crap! Uh, this is." I mean, in ten years, for ten for recover for Russia to recover to the point that it has in ten years is absolutely incredible. The amount of work that was necessary to be done. I mean, because Russia was really the, the pooch was screwed. The pooch was dead. I mean, completely and totally dead in Russia. 
and in 10 years, they've managed to, to make a serious comeback. And now is at the point where a lot of people, like everyday people you hear, like, you know, if Canada did this, we would have already declared war. And you say, yeah, why, have you ever thought to ask the question of why haven't they declared war against Russia over this? I mean, they, for the First World War was started by some random archduke from some backwater being, being assassinated, and it started one of the greatest wars of all time. The Second World War was started under less. Why hasn't the war started? And it's because Russia has seriously solidified its position economically and militarily, and has done it in 10 years without anyone really noticing. I mean, all of a sudden, because you, you heard some negative stuff about Russia, but it wasn't until this Ukraine thing that people really started to harp on Russia as, oh, this great big evil empire. They came out of nowhere with this crap, mm -hmm. and nobody saw it coming. And that, on this global stage, with all this global spy stuff, the fact that America wasn't really seriously able to work on the Russian situation earlier is a testament to how clever they've been positioning themselves for this, I think. Yeah. And, um the amazing development of Russia over the last decade shows how destructful polarization is. Right. Because it shows that if a country is not so polarized with a decent leader over in 10 years, he can do wonders. Yep. And um, where well, we were talking about uh, Russia and Ukraine and Obama being busy with uh, demonizing Putin, so obviously, uh, uh, although in your country, he was busy with uh, trying to deal with a Ferguson event that is apparently a close case now. The National Guard intervened. There were massive uh, demonstrations. National Guard intervened. And now demonstrations are done. So what is the conclusion? All that for nothing. Again, one more case of uh, murder I... and demonstration. And finally, uh, back to square one. Uh... I looked up how many times U.S. National Guard has been called out to deal with civil unrest or dissent. Um, the last time it happened was 1992 to deal with the L.A. riots. Before that, it's the 60s. Lyndon Johnson twice, 65 and 68, when Martin Luther King was assassinated. So apart from the L.A. riots, this is the most recent one. And no, with the exception of one, three weeks ago, the National Guard were also called out to deal with the hysteria, I guess. But I, th I think I'm not, I'm not sure to what extent that there is an issue out on the Texas-Mexican border. I mean, the Texans are claiming that people are pouring over the border. And Rick Perry called out the National Guard of his own accord. The U.S. governor has not done that since I don't know when. Um... The governor of Missouri did it now, well, last week, but with the federal government's backing. Rick, Rick Perry did it on his own accord, and he has since, like just two days ago, been indicted and arrested on unrelated corruption charges. Hmm. So there's something going on there. We've had the National Guard call that twice in the last month. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think it's, I, I think it's indicative the of call, yeah. the unrest in the U.S. Well, the calling out of the National Guard is uh, maybe indicative of uh, a jury yeah. among the elite to any uh, mobilization of you know, people on the streets. Uh, of course, especially black people. Because they spend so much time funding color revolutions and exploiting <laughs> any 
any small number of discontent, malcontents, or dissidents, or anybody who has revolutionary leanings. It's just so many years exploiting them and funding them that they are terrified that somebody's going to yeah. do it to them. It's going to happen organically. The thing is, it's going to happen for real. In the first place, there's going to be a, a, a real revolution uh, amongst all these color revolutions is, uh, is in the U.S., I reckon. You know, and it's going to be for very good reasons, which is these cops going around. I mean, it's amazing. Executing that, people. Pretty much executing people, yeah, because uh, it's amazing the number of uh, shootings, police shootings that have just they've really spiked over the past few years, you know. It's been ongoing for a while, but really spiked. And, of course, people have put it down to, oh, more people have cell phones and, you know, video cameras. So that's why I've seen more of it. But uh, I don't think so. Cell phones have been around for quite a long time and cameras and stuff, you know. So uh, that doesn't really fly. There's clearly been upswing in police brutality, and it's a function of um, maybe psychopaths, uh, well, a greater number of psychopaths I do have finding positions of power and control in the obvious place, which is a police force. Yeah. Well, I did kind of have this, like, one thing. Uh, uh, originally, I can't remember who said it, the quote, but that they, they kind of basically said that the American judicial system was created not to be perfect, and it was more about, yeah, bad people will get away, but the hope is that fewer good people will be executed or imprisoned, you know, just sort of avoiding injustice. Mm. And in America, you have this movement of people who have, they're so afraid of crime, they're so afraid of any guilty person getting away that they actually have switched around and they feel that it's acceptable for some innocent people to be killed or executed by the shot by the police or sent to jail or be executed in prison if that means that no bad guys get away. But what they kind of don't understand is that when you no longer have a threat from crime on the streets from you know, the local thug, all of a sudden you have a threat of crime from the established authority, which of course is what we learned from history in the, the 17 and 1800s and why this whole idea of controlling the police and keeping them from having these two, two, two strong powers was created specifically to avoid what happens is the exploitation of people and psychopaths in power, which is what happens. So now you are less likely to get shot by a thug on the street, but you are more likely to get shot by a police officer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't, don't we see the same template again and again around the world? You have basically an oppressive psychopathic force Israel Defense Force, Ukraine Army, U.S. policemen, harassing innocent civic population. Different countries, different names, but same behavior is some kind of radicalization. Mm-hmm. Right. Psychopath getting totally out of control, getting berserk for many right. reasons, maybe the cosmic uh, changes that they're sensing that we mentioned before. Yeah, I think the Ferguson thing is, uh, is indicative of uh, people in the U.S. getting to the point where um, at least certainly the most targeted people in the U.S., which is the black community and the, the non-white, essentially, getting to the point where they're reaching the, the limit of their tolerance species that they're being subjected to by these cycles and with badges, you know. And um, it's, a, it's, a kind of, it's in a certain sense a kind of a marker of that, that it's got so bad where there has been this uh, these few days of uh, protest in the streets and and and, and again uh, the jitteriness of the cycles in power who see that and immediately call in or call in the national guard. Um, 
But I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, there's no, it 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 defies kind of belief almost. And um, when you see, I mean, okay, so they just execute this guy because he because he stole. Uh, well, the cop who killed him. Now, first know, of all, yeah. I saw the video, and I'm not entirely sure that the video is conclusive evidence of a theft because I saw the video, and it looks a little bit weird. But who knows? Maybe it's something. But it does look very suspicious. Like there might have been some thievery or some sort changing going on, and the guy comes out from behind the counter, and then the other guy pushes him back and says, leave me, like, leave me alone, and walks out. So there may have been that. But the cop who shot him could not have known yeah, he, about it. His problem was he that didn't. he was jaywalking. He didn't know. He got him for jaywalking, he got for him walking along the road with his friend. Yeah. You know, so, but, the, but the point being is that this is, like a, this is controlling the debate again back to, to satisfy authoritarian, the authoritarian population, because it doesn't matter what crime he committed. The job of the police is to arrest and bring before a judge where evidence is produced. Mm. A person is not guilty until a judge has said so in a court or with a jury of their peers. Mm. Period. It doesn't even matter if the, if, if, if the cop says, I saw it. It doesn't matter until a judge says it. Yeah. Cops don't get to make that decision. <laughs> yeah, they're not judge jury executioner. And they're but not they allowed to execute people. But when someone has committed a crime and the judge and, and the police officer says, I shot him because he was stealing something, and all the authoritarians say, well, he deserved it. It's like, no, hold yeah, on. He's breaking the law. So he's there. not guilty of a crime until a judge says mm-hmm. he's yeah. Well, that's summary execution. That's a police state uh, yeah. dictatorship, essentially, where, you know, uh, the, the forces of law and order are empowered to kind of uh, summarily execute people on the street uh, when they break the law, no matter what the law is, right. however minor. I mean, they they killed. I mean, just the way they, they shoot, they have a tendency to, sh- to, to shoot to kill multiple times. Right. And then find out afterwards. You know, just if in doubt, or if you're a little bit afraid, kill him. And then, riddle with him. And then you Because yeah. there was another guy a couple of days later, right, after, right afterwards. Yeah. yeah, like just 10 miles away or something. Mm-hmm. Um, his name was Kajime Powell. And I watched a video of this. And he's outside a kind of like, it's just a suburban street. Uh, you know, houses and stuff. And there's a little section where it's just a, a store. Apparently there's a guy filming it. This is before the police arrived, and this guy had been in. And first thing you see is a couple of uh, like cans of soda or something on on the ground, and the guy kind of standing there walking around. And then it pans around to the store owner who's come outside, and he's kind of saying to this guy who's a little bit away from him, "Listen, he's saying stuff like this isn't the way to do it, you know." Apparently, this guy was a bit kind of like he's insane, a little bit okay. crazy. But he had put down the two cans of soda that he took out of the store and put them on the ground as if saying, "You know, nobody touched this, you know, uh, you know." He was just, I don't know, he was a bit, a bit crazy. But then the cops arrived, pulled up in a white, white cop car, and two cops get out. And he kind of walks away from them a little bit, but then starts walking towards them. And apparently he has a knife in his hand. But, apparently. But it's, but, it, but it's by his side all the time. He never brandish, doesn't brandish <coughs> it. And, uh, so I didn't wa- see the knife. Neither did I, but he walked towards the cops, and the cops shouted, put the knife down, put the knife down. And uh, the guys shouting, kill me now, kill me now. Hmm. And other things. Uh, so that when he's at least six feet, maybe more, away from the two cops, the cops just, both of them just open up on him and shoot him many times. Yeah. And then they cough him. Yeah. And he's dead. Yeah. They cough, they actually yeah. go to bother coughing him. Yeah. And if the guy had a knife and they're six, about six feet or six or eight feet away from him, that's pretty close. A trained cop should be able to shoot him in the shoulder. Right. Or in the arm that's holding the, the knife. Yeah. Well, the arm that's holding the knife, the problem is put the knife down. He's got a knife. Shoot, shoot him in the knife. 
six feet away. Yeah. Shoot him in the hand. Shoot him in the arm. No, you shoot him six times in his torso. Right. Or nine times in his torso. Right. I mean, it just this guy's dead. That's yeah. it. No, no yeah. justice. No Shoot inquiry. No judicial inquiry. Not acceptable. No court case. Nothing. These guys are judge, jury, executioner, and they get away with it. Yeah. If you've got a knife or any kind of threatening weapon, and you're near a cop, and the cop fears even momentarily for his life, or for, not even for his life, that he might be in some way injured. And they've got tasers and stuff as well. They're equipped with all these mm. techniques to deal with these situations. But if he feels that in any way he's threatened by you, he's allowed to shoot you dead. And that's fine. I mean, go, go, to, go to work the next day. Yeah. You get a pat on the back. Yeah. Previously, you mentioned this uh, level of tolerance that has been reached, especially among the black population. So you think all those uh, cold-blooded murder committed by the police should not be analyzed as isolated cases but the population, especially black population, is getting angrier and angrier when seeing all those injustices and those abuses, and they, there is this uh, kind of uh, anger growing under the surface it's, it's at every murder. Because it's, it's not a race thing at all. I mean, there were mass protests in Albuquerque, New Mexico, earlier this summer. Um, people in the city had to be it was a similar situation. They were basically eaten up and booted out. They were they were occupying and blocking the police department headquarters. Um, it's happening a lot, you know. Yeah. They won the feds won this one through blatant propaganda war by, for example, simultaneously releasing the name of the officer who killed Michael Brown and the CCTV footage to portray him as a thief and therefore in some way worthy of murder. And you, if you read a lot of people's comments, they kind of go, oh, oh, well, right, he was robbing the store. Well, then, yeah, yeah. But there will come a time where I think this happens again and it could set the country alight. You know, yeah. it, it's getting stronger and stronger. People are saying, no, it's just simply, it's simply not acceptable for the police to execute a person for a crime that doesn't even merit execution. Stealing some cigars from a convenience store will not get you executed in any state in the United States of America. It will get you a couple of years in prison at the most. Don't you think that, again, there is a battle for the mind of people? The way they repress those demonstrations with cigars, with violence, there's a fight in, people, in the people's mind between the, this legitimate anger because of all those police abuses. On the other side, the elites are trying to instill this fear, this mm-hmm. fear of rebelling by uh, showing violence against demonstrators. So what way is it going to be to go? The stick only works for a certain period of time. It really only works for a certain period of time. It's not, uh, it's not a good long-term strategy, but it's the only one that they understand. It's the only way that they know how to deal with people is to beat them down. You know, I mean, it's... So... You have people who are rebuilding more and more. In Ukraine, you have those uh, Eastern Ukrainians rebuilding against a big army, bigger than them. In uh, the U.S., you have people rebuilding more and more about uh, abusive police forces. And, uh, and in Gaza, you have uh, Gazaways, Palestinians, who are resisting for decades, uh, theoretically, against the occupying force. Uh, we're changing topic here. And, uh, what, where the, so there was a ceasefire, no, no more ceasefire, ceasefire again. What is business about ceasefire? Who, before we get into that, we have a call. I'm going to do this. Hi, do we have a call on the line? 
Yeah, yeah. This is um, Ken hey. from West Virginia. And hey, you were talking about you're talking about the shootings going on for uh, cigars and uh, you know minor little things. And uh, of course, um, Americans um, don't really know their history. Or, um, Americans think that they were settled by the pilgrims coming for um, religious freedom. And uh, of course, I grew up in Virginia, and that was Jamestown. 1607. It was amazing. The 400th anniversary of the founding of Jamestown almost went by without hardly even a mention. And you would have thought that would have been, you know, a huge, huge. And that's because the um, I think that the 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 North won the war. They won the rhetoric, and it's the religious freedom and the pilgrims. But really, the Virginia was set up. Was a penal colony partially as a penal colony. People came from uh, Virginia, transported to Virginia for seven and fourteen years uh, in indentured servitude, because you could get killed for you could be executed for stealing a chicken in England at the time. You know that was the story we always heard. So now the same thing's going on here in the United States, and uh, they don't you know people don't even realize it. You know, and so it's kind of it's, it's bizarre. I called into a show yesterday on. Uh, program the guy was ranting on about property and I says I just told him what I just said you know blah 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 and then, then he changed his tune you know but uh, it, you know this mm. is just, just bizarre what's going on here it's history repeating circle. itself it's a circle all yeah. history is alright Kent thanks man okay thanks for calling talk to you later alright Kent yeah, yeah history repeats itself that's right and history is it's closed the circle and it always has been and it's a shame that we haven't been able to break out of it yet. Maybe this time. And if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it again and again. And people still don't. We were talking about Gaza, and uh, there seemed to be a new trick in the book from the Israeli elites. And uh, there is this uh, ceasefire on and off and on. How do you... Uh, Explain or how do you understand this? Those uh, changes. Many times reload. Yeah. Now it's um, the you know the ceasefire is uh, compared to the bombardment that that was going on a few weeks ago. It has calmed down, but you know they're still they're still sending uh, missiles and just today taking down 12-story apartment blocks mm-hmm. um, on the basis of rockets being fired. I mean that story is so old and. So it's a lie that they've so many times. I don't believe there are any rockets anymore. I'm, I'm starting to question the existence of the rockets. Yeah. I don't see any evidence. Do you think that in, the, in this modern day and age, they would have a whole lot more evidence? You know what? I've, I've seen one picture and one video of rockets, and none of them did any serious damage at all. Hmm. That's all that they've been able to muster. The rest of it's just infographics. Their proof for everything is infographics. Whenever, whenever the Israelis want to come up, with some new reason for doing something that gives you infographics to explain why and how they're doing it. And I just, I'm getting to the point where I'm saying, where's the evidence on this one? I want to say, they keep saying these thousands and thousands of rockets and all they have is one crappy CCTV camera showing some sort of thing dropping into the ground and a cat jumping out of the tree. And the cat didn't even die, you know? And I'm sorry, but... I'm starting to ask a serious question. Where is the evidence? I would like to see just a little bit more evidence. There is on the same social media and common sense. Here's, here's, here's an experiment to anybody who really wonders about what's going on. Go to Google Maps, street-level view of Tel Aviv, 
mm. and then try to take a street-level view of Gaza. There isn't one. And I want you to go through the street-level view of Tel Aviv and count the number of bombed-out buildings. There aren't any. Mm. And that's kind of really the end of the discussion because you can go and walk through Tel Aviv on Google Maps, no blown-up buildings, mm. no bodies in the street, but you cannot do the same thing with Gaza. It's a farce. Complete farce. It's a complete farce. Let me just uh, go to another call here. Hello there. Hi. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Uh, Charles, Missoula, Montana. Hey, Hey, Charles. Comments. Uh, Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, Two comments. Uh, The last guy was talking about Yorktown. Uh, I've been there. Uh, It's a beautiful place. And I just want, in solidarity with the French, uh, every 4th of July, we celebrate uh, that the French helped the U.S. defeat the British uh, during that war. And if it hadn't been for the, excuse me, if it hadn't been for the French blockade, we wouldn't have won that war. And, you know, when you had the whole Freedom Prize thing, when France wasn't support the invasion of Iraq, uh, and, you know, you go down to Nashville, Tennessee, and they're beautiful people in the South. They really are. They're about family, good music, but they've got this old, I don't know if it's because of what happened in the Civil War, but it's like they're ready to go to war for anything. And I was in the Bluebird Cafe, and this guy's talking about the French. I said, I piped up. It was like televised. And I said, I piped up. Well, if it hadn't been for the French, we wouldn't have America, <laughs> you know. So mm-hmm. I want to make that point that Yorktown is a beautiful place where the surrender of the British, um, they put down their arms if you ever get a chance to go there. And the French are honored there in Yorktown every 4th of July. That was my first point. Next point, I just want to pick your guy's brain you know, as you're musing about the world conditions. Where's this all going, man, with this Third World War and all this aggression against Russia? I just wanted to see into your crystal ball and, and see where's this going and Two, five, ten years. That's it. <laughs> the future uh, is open. It's really open. Where yeah. it could go, who knows? Yeah, I don't think there's going to be a world war. Um, I think they're going to try. I think they're going to try the damnedest. Yeah, I think they're they're too chicken. I mean, if you think about it, uh, I mean, obviously we're talking about the U.S. and NATO. The the other ones yeah. who wage war and stuff, and I don't think they're. They've got the cojones to do it because, generally speaking, when they've waged wars in the last, you know, 70, 80 years, uh, it hasn't really been a war. It's been a kind of a turkey shoot where they were largely, you know, far superior than, than the enemy. And in many cases, there wasn't really any, any enemy at all. They were just bombing civilians. So, uh, yes, it's, it's civilian destruction. Russia, yeah. And in the face of Russia, uh, I don't think they, I think they're chicken, essentially. Well, here's the problem. I mean, I completely agree with you on that. Very good point. I mean, it's like totally the correct assessment. Uh, what the only problem I have with it in, is this particular thing. When you see like a bunch of uh, kind of like young gang members, you know, they're kind of like new and green and stuff like that. And they meet a, an, another group of gang members, and they all start doing this posturing thing, and they throw out their gang signs and stuff like that. And 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 you know that nine times out of ten, it's not going to really lead anywhere because they're both kind of chicken shit about it. Right. But sometimes you get that one person who is actually kind of chicken shit, but they do so much posing and so much posturing 
that all of a sudden they realize that they have to put up and shut up, put up or shut up, basically. And you've got this West that is just rabbling, rousing, rah, 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 waving the banner. Oh, yeah, we're so great. We're so awesome. We're the most powerful nation. Look at our army. It's so awesome. And all of a sudden, they're gonna, there's going to come this point where they're actually going to have to pull the trigger and fire a real shot. And right there, you do, you have a chance that if the pressure, and they've, they've boasted so much, that they will be peer pressured into it and they will actually pull the trigger and it might spiral out of control. Yeah. And these types yeah. of that kind of is what led to World War One, supposedly. I think it was a little bit yeah, more that, cold than that. Yeah, that could happen, trip. and that could happen, and it's good to to hear from Joe that he doesn't think that's going to happen. The other thing is this whole ISIS thing. You know, it's kind of like provocateurs, or provocateurs, excuse me, uh, where there's peaceful protests in the U.S. or anywhere in the world, Quebec. And then the, 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 the powers that be, you know, infiltrate and turn it into violence so that they can come down with oppression. And this whole ISIS thing that's being funded by Israel and Saudi Arabia and the U.S., you know, going on murdering people all over the Arab world, maybe for control. But now they're talking about coming over the border, you know, in Mexico. And I'm wondering, are they going to go into America and just turn it into this total chaos just for their own purposes? I'll, I'll listen off the line. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, okay. that's Thanks, possible. Guys. All right. Thank Thanks, Charles. Thanks, Charles. Bye-bye. I, I think that's possible, but um, I, I think, you know, they want chaos. That's how, when they know how to handle people. You know, if they think it's going to go there anyway, they want to precipitate it so they can uh, manage the situation. Uh, but I think if, I mean, just kind of recent news is that there was a major earthquake in the biggest one in maybe 20 years or something like that in in California uh, in the San Francisco area and uh, I think that kind of stuff is going to intercede as well so it's going to get very kind of dicey and very hairy for the US government to maintain control because right. there's stuff going to come out of left field from a natural um, source I earthquakes you know maybe who knows what else outgassings all the rest you know anything you can think of so could open. happen anything yeah. can happen and yeah, but let's just before we start anymore, let's just go to this last call we have on the line. Hey, do we have a call on the line? Yes, you do. Uh, and what's your name and where are you calling from? Um, this is Lori. I'm calling from Idaho again. Hey, Lori. Welcome Hi, Lori. to the show. How's it going? Pretty good. Hey, I just wanted to say thank you to Pierre and actually all of you for the book, The Earth Changes. It was it was a really good read and kind of a change the way that I looked at the whole world. So I really appreciated it. Excellent. And I have to Thank agree with the last time. caller on the whole France being partly responsible for the existence of the United States and why that just gets shoved under the carpet. It's like the short-term or the, our long-term memory, like you guys are always talking about, is just not even there. Yeah, and it's so, I don't know whether it's so important to, for people to understand what's going on today to have a memory of history, you know? Yeah, it's bad. But I wanted to comment about uh, the news here. There's there's absolutely no coverage of anything going on between Israel and Gaza. There's no more Ukrainian coverage between Russia and Ukraine on the just when you watch the news on the TV. And what in the hell is up with the plane that got shot down? That would be huge huge news. It would be on every day. And there's nothing. There's nothing on the the um, investigation or any explanation. They're showing 
fluffy, warm, viral videos off of YouTube, and I mean, it's 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 pathetic. It's awful. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it it served his purpose. His purpose was to make Putin out to be evil incarnate. So now you move on. He pushed the button himself from his his his, his, his battle platform airplane as he was flying over. <laughs> uh, he was in on the whole thing. It was Putin. Well, you know, I don't know. It's just it's just so weird that it just like dropped off the radar completely because any other time in the past 15 or 20 years, it would have been huge news and it would have gone on and on and we would have been hearing about the investigation. But you're right. They just said, oh, Putin did it. And that's okay. I don't, you know, it's, you know, why, Laurie, you're talking about MH17 here over Ukraine, right? Yeah. Well, I think the reason... Why is because that was essentially a, a kind of a false flag used to demonize, to try and demonize Putin and blame him and get him out of Ukraine. And since it didn't work and it's gone, uh, it wasn't a genuine event. Therefore, there isn't a genuine investigation into it. Because the investigation would be would reveal the reveal truth about it. Inconvenient. The and, and the truth about it is, is that uh, the cockpit... There was a plane, the Russians did reveal a little bit of detail, which was that there was a, a Ukrainian, at least a, a Ukrainian-colored jet flying in the vicinity of the, that aircraft before it came down. And yeah, the, I remember reading most, that. The most likely theory is that it shot at the cockpit because of the damage to the cockpit section seems to be uh, as a result of cannon fire, as in bullet, bullet holes. Uh, so the cockpit was shot at by the jet to, to take out the pilots. And... Um, so they couldn't communicate, couldn't, you know, send any radio communications. And then shortly after, it was a bomb on board, blew it up. That was the way, the cleanest way, in, in quotes, that they could do it. But the whole point of it was what came out afterwards or what the media said afterwards, which was, this is Putin. To try to demonize caught. Russia and the Russians. and Pretty much. And, and when they got everything out of it they could, then they move on. And it's forgotten. As quickly as possible to the next thing so that people will will forget about this unresolved issue of the MH17, which there is obviously some benefit with constantly bringing back, what about that MH17 thing? Didn't anything come of that? But uh, no, they've got the black box. So, And maybe at some point they'll reveal some new information obtained from the black box that will conveniently point to wherever they want to point it to. Um, yeah. You know, but take that for down the line. It's kind of creepy yeah. being a thought reader and and paying attention to what's going on, you know, from that from that point, and then actually living in this country and looking around at people and hearing what people talk about and how they talk about it and just knowing that I'm surrounded by people that have no clue what's going on in the world. No clue. There's, there's zombies, Lori. They are. But the more you learn from, from you guys, from reading, from listening to the radio show... And, the, and you live with them, and it's, yeah, we walk amongst Hard, yeah. them. <laughs> it's scary. Well, keep your faith anyway. Yeah. Keep your chin up. It's hard, but it's true. I will. And you guys, thanks for the show, and thanks for the book. It was awesome. Keep it up. All right. Thank you. Thank All right. You. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Bye. I have another piece of interesting I bet most of our American listeners have never heard before. A caller, Charles mentioned French assistance in the War of Independence. But nobody knows that in the Civil War, the Russian Baltic fleet 
went to San Francisco. And the Russian Black Sea Fleet went to New York Harbor. And as a result, staved off British involvement entering on the side of the Confederates. There would be no United States of America today if it weren't for Soros Russia. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. sure someone coming from the South, that's not speaking good for Russia. Uh, well, it would have been a world they war. They sided with the Union. <laughs> yeah, they, they weren't thinking this is the... That's why, because we choose the Union over... It's because of British involvement in it, I think. It was basically a great game extended to the American, the Western mm. Hemisphere. Well, that That's how been. global it was. There would have been a world war about 70 years earlier. Before before closing the show, um, let's address the last topic. A few months ago, we never heard about ISIS. And now ISIS, the jihadi organization, is about to take over the world, to institute the caliphate of uh, In Europe and right. the U.S. They're beheading people, this one individual, James Foley, namely. So is ISIS going to take the world over? No. Are they going to behead all of us during our sleep? Yes. What's your take on uh, the new threat? Of the day. It's a Frankenstein monster version of uh, Israel's uh, Greater Israel, because that's actually more or less where they want to establish their caliphate, you know, and I'm sure the Israelis are, Israelis are quite quiet about that, you know, it's yeah, like, you hey, you're moving in our we, we were on first, we wanted that before you guys. But then, if you realize that, you know, Israelis kind of tend to need, for, on a very, from a very fundamental, and fundamental point of view, they kind of tend to need Islamic terrorism right. to justify their very existence. Because if there was nothing for Israel uh, to fight against, as in no deadly threat from Muslims, then questions would be raised about um, the utility you know, and purpose. Well, and also about uh, historical justice and, uh, you know, how do you guys get well, here anyway? Stuff like that, you know? When has the world ever been interested in historical well, justice? Well, it might bubble up to the surface, you know, Look now that I've Native Americans. Look at the Native Hawaiians. Well, at the Look very on. least, Israel would have to live peaceably, you know, with its, with its neighbors and maybe give a bit of land back to the Palestinians because there's, there's no threat anymore. historical precedence for that. <laughs> no, but the question will be raised in the absence of a Muslim terror threat trying to wipe out Israel all the time. If that didn't exist at all, then what are the Palestinians going to do? You're going to have to live with them, right? How are you going to live with the Palestinians? If everybody's cool and Palestinians are fine, not a threat to Israel, how are they going to live? The plan, the plan of Israel is to kill them all. Well, exactly, but they can only do that when there's a Muslim terror threat and that gets back to the... An excuse. An excuse, some kind of a rationale. It makes right? it easy. Yeah, it makes yeah. definitely. I mean, that's what ISIS is kind of all about. Partly, anyway, it's a it's a fulfillment of of the prediction uh, from years ago that uh, Western European and American governments have been trying to scare the bejesus out of people, well, with, which is class. the Muslim horde class. coming across and establishing Sharia law and forcing all the women to wear veils. In the UK, apparently, there's a there's a there's plots in the UK schools to. <laughs> I mean, it was just so ridiculous. It's just so ridiculous. It's like, how can you even talk to people that actually believe that stuff? They actually print this stuff in the UK and the, the, the American media. Print this absolute BS. Well, that ISIS has has infiltrated our schools and they're going to turn our little kids into these sort of, you know, jihadis. Yeah. Well, they try very hard oh to convince God. people by way of doing the kind of things that they made this IS or Islamic State. Uh, do recently or, you know, facilitated them to do, which is, uh, you know, publicly cut the head off, well, not 
you know, fully, but you know, apparently cut cut the heads off of Westerners, of nice American journalists and stuff like that, and um, and have the whole world up in arms about it, about how brutal and uh, violent it is, and this is just well, proof that uh, the entire war on terror is justified because there really is this horrible terrorist Islamic terrorist threat. Uh, and they really do hate Western people because why else would they cut the heads off them? Uh, yeah, along the lines of what Laurie pointed out, where from one day to the next, you know, the media's mm. on this topic, right? Drop it. Next topic. I mean, ISIS came out of nowhere mm. eight weeks ago, mm. and mm. I believe what they're saying, they've basically declared a new country, uh, overrun parts of Syria, most of Iraq, and are now gunning to attack the homeland in the U.S. and the U.K. Well, it's, an exa- it's also, there's an example, yeah. Overnight, a, I was like, hello. There's an, exa- there's an example here of the, of the, how little stock uh, politicians put in people's memory. Yeah. And yeah. how they're really shortening it, you know. Yeah, people don't really know what happened, you know, just last week anymore, you know, or even couple of months ago, you know, it was big news. I mean, everybody should know that the U.S. and European governments were supporting the so-called Syrian rebels against Assad. They wanted to overthrow Assad, right? Everybody remembers that from the past few years, right? The civil war, whatever they call it, in Syria. And everybody knows as well that at least was mentioned in the mainstream media that there were al-Qaeda extremist groups among these Syrian, free Syrian army type people who were the, the good guys or terrorists trying to overthrow the brutal dictator, blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, stuff you probably don't know is, because it didn't get much coverage, was that um, uh, people in, in positions to know and um, who should probably know better than to say this kind of stuff, like for example, the Council on Foreign Relations, which is essentially the Western kind of political think tank, um, said uh, just a couple of years ago during uh, the the Western-sponsored kind of civil war on on Syria, um, they said that the Syrian rebels would be immense immeasurably weaker today without Al-Qaeda in the ranks. Uh, so they talk about the jihadis bringing discipline, religious fervor, and battle experience from Iraq. So basically, the you know, politicians were explicitly saying that pretty much the people that they were funding, and this was public as well, that they were supplying weapons, uh, money, and training in Jordan and, uh, and indirectly through Saudi Arabia to uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Now, Al-Qaeda, you know, ISIS, it's pretty much all the same, right? These are fundy extremist people. And there's a, essentially a public admission that over the past few years that they were funding uh, these jihadis, extremist jihadis in Syria to try and get them to overthrow Assad. That didn't happen largely because of Russian support for Syria and continuing to supply them with uh, weapons to, to repel this Western-sponsored jihadi attack on them. And now when that didn't work out, you say, okay, Move, move them out, of, get them, uh, they're still in Syria, but kind of push them out, they're being pushed out, they're not winning that particular war that we sponsored, get them into Iraq and, you know, create some havoc there, and uh, and establish, talk about establishing this Islamic uh, caliphate, and uh, and just for good measure, 
you know, I don't know what the particular end game of this gang is, but they were not only were they funded and trained and armed in Syria over the past three years, but when they moved in the <clears throat> when they were told to move uh, into Iraq to get out of the out of the way, kind of because they were being defeated in Syria by Assad, uh, they just picked up pretty much all of the military equipment that the Americans had left in Iraq for the Iraqi army, which they didn't really do a very good job with because they were, you know, Iraq's kind of very divided. They left an extremely fractured and divided country because they occupied it uh, for 10 years and killed one and a half million people and installed a puppet kind of government. So, and then they left an army as well, supposedly. But obviously, that's not very, you're not going to have a very cohesive army, and they didn't have one, but they left them lots of military equipment. You just can't get on with it there. So when IS comes into Iraq, they just, just kind of walk in, basically, and that's why this uh, impressive kind of uh, advance that they've, they've made. And they took all the all the shiny new American military hardware and are using that to run around Iraq, you know, just run around like headless chickens kind of thing, sharing mm-hmm. things and, you know, shouting Allah Akbar and, you know, we're going to establish a caliphate and stuff. And most recently, publicly beheading a Westerner and, you know, making statements to the camera about Obama, this is what you get, it's your choice. If you, Theater. Yeah, it's, it's just the worst kind of theater. It's ridiculous. And it's not the first, obviously. Because, it's not the first because there's been several of these kind of beheadings that have been uh, filmed by supposed... Anytime the U.S. wants to demonize any kind of group of people or just make everybody in the West afraid of Muslims in Iraq, for example, uh, they get a bunch of trained, trained kind of hired mercenaries to you know, publicly behead some white Western like contract worker or a journalist or whatever. They did it with uh, Daniel Pearl in 2002. In 2004, I think they did it with um, Nick Berg. Although, if you look up the Nick Berg one, the Nick Berg video was aged. <laughs> the video was so just so bad. I mean, he obviously was killed, but they have him in this orange jumpsuit kneeling down, and the guy standing behind him with their faces covered. Now, one of the guys standing behind him. Uh, has white hands, so not very Iraqi looking. Um, the Nick Berg is speaking the audio over the tape of Nick Berg supposedly you know, talking before he was killed. Uh, his mouth doesn't move at all. He doesn't move at all. He looks like he's dead already. Uh, but there's a voiceover, and then the tape cuts. There's lots of obvious cuts in it and stuff. And then there's this scream, which sounds like a woman scream, which is meant to be him screaming as he's getting his head cut off. And of course, they use. You know, it's, it's really graphic and brutal to use a knife, like a kitchen knife or something, to hack away at his head, you know. But, and then there's no blood whatsoever, you know, so they're cutting through, suppose, a live person's kind of uh, their veins and stuff, but there's no blood. And then there's another cut, and they hold up the head and all this kind of stuff. It's just so bad. That's an example of, of the theater that this is. Not that they're not actually killing people, but it's done in such a way, it's produced, essentially, for a very particular reason, and the particular reason is to scare the crap out of people in the West and to reinforce this idea right. that jihadis are coming to get you, therefore you need the government to protect you, you need us in the Middle East, we need to kill the Muslims, just keep you distracted, afraid, and that's what these people are paid to do, but also they're kind of, uh, you know, these are people, the IS group are people who who are being given the opportunity. The U.S. doesn't care anymore about the Middle East, particularly Iraq and Syria, but particularly Iraq, they're saying, well, you know, who gives a shit who runs the place anymore, you know? So let's give promises to these 
IS people, and there's a few amongst their, the people who are kind of the leaders of it, who well, they'd like to have their own little slice of land or caliphate and be the leader. So, yeah, we'll fight for that, you know. I like money and power, yeah. you know. So, yeah, I'll go for that. And they get a bunch of fundies who are all in the, you know, kind of like the extreme evangelical Christian type yeah. of thing, you know. They, you have the Muslim variety who, you know, fight and kill for Jesus or Muhammad. And uh, and they're all in it just for the fun and as well. They're all, you know, they're reared on uh, video games, you know, shoot them up, first-person shooter video games. So they know, you know how it's done, you know. Let's go to Iraq and, and, and shoot off some clash and calls for Allah and mm. shoot some people. It's all fun, you know. And, of course, as we mentioned before, a lot of psychopaths involved. Uh, but they, the whole thing is ridiculous because they could be easily taken out by any of the countries around Saudi Arabia, right. Israel, the U.S. is all over the place. And any of them could just dismiss or deal with these people very quickly, but they're not being allowed to do what they do because it's the big, scary Islamic boogeyman show back prime time on your screens. And it's not complete theater in the sense that these people are crazy. And this is the mix I was talking about earlier with Jason, actually, a mix of kind of fantasy and reality where they have this idea of how we want to scare the crap out of people in the West and keep them controlled. So they imagine this idea of the terrorist kind of... uh, Muslim boogeyman, you know, coming out of his closet with a knife going... So they have that image, yeah, that's, that would be great, but how do we make it reality? So but we so we actually find some people who have fulfilled that role and actually do it, and they can film, you know... All the better <clears> if they're brown. Yeah, and the whole cutting, this guy, um, Foley, what's the first name? James. James Foley. I mean, he's just a victim. They just throw, I mean, Daniel Pearl in 2002 was a Wall Street journalist who was... <clears throat> he was investigating, you probably remember the uh, <clears throat> shoe bomber, Richard Reed, <clears throat> which was a, kind of like a false flag operation um, around that time, just after 9-11. <clears throat> he was, was kind of like the knicker bomber. He was a shoe bomber and then there was a knicker bomber. But he was investigating him in Pakistan. This is Daniel Pearl, Wall Street, a Jewish Wall Street Journal reporter. He was trying to find out and he was stumbling across uh, uh, information, getting contacts with people who were showing him that this guy Richard Reed was basically in the pay of Pakistani intelligence. And Pakistani intelligence, the uh, um, ISI, have a long track record of um, basically running terrorists, uh, Muslim groups, and Muslim terrorists also on behalf of the CIA and ISI, ISIS. ISI, ISIS. Yeah. Yeah. So Daniel Pearl was there, and he he was the first one. You know, he got caught, and he was he was. Theoretically, he was going to try and expose the fact that this was all kind of phony, fake terrorism with very strange links back to intel agencies. <coughs> so they used him as an example. Instead of allowing him to expose this fundamental truth, they used him to further the the, the fantasy, which okay. is crazy Muslim terrorists. And he was beheaded, supposedly, by a group. Strangely enough, the group that supposedly beheaded him, had come out of nowhere, got a new name, got a name, picked a name from the dictionary, you know, the group for freedom of Pakistani things, and uh, and then they disappeared again. And uh, But one of their demands when they had, supposedly had power, was um, that the U.S. make good on a contract that, uh, or an order that the Pakistani government had for like 20 or 30 F-16s yeah. that the U.S. was was stalling on. <gasps> so this is a rather strange jihadi group yeah. who wanted the U.S. to sell their stuff to Pakistan or they would kill Americans. Yeah. <clears throat> Usually it's kind of like, <clears throat> yeah. you want America out of here. 
Oh, Kill American Truck. Yeah. So uh, he was the first one, and, but, uh, and he was the, the the blame for his murder was pinned on two people who were connected with 9/11. It was at that era of everybody was involved in 9/11. You know, yeah. everybody who did anything wrong in the Muslim world was a mastermind of the 9/11 attacks. You know that. Right. Uh, and then there was, like I said, 2004, Nick Berg, that was an silly one. And so this, there's a track record to this, cutting the heads off people and having some, but now it's in high definition. You know, that's the good thing yeah. about it, because it's HD now, because back then there wasn't as much HD around, but the video I have of it is like, you know, yeah. it's very good quality, you know. And, uh, well, what you've just said kind of reminds me of something that Baron von Harkonnen said from the Doom series. He said that the mark of all great conspiracies is the perversion of common wisdom. And there's this, yeah. this complete lack of common sense. You have, like, the State Department's appealing to social media and common sense. When is the last time that cutting off a, a Westerner's head on a video has led to anything good for any terrorist organization? Never. Mm-hmm. Never. It's never worked. So what are these people doing? How stupid yeah. can you be? Well, we want to establish a caliphate. In order to do that, we probably don't want the U.S. military attacking us. Mm-hmm. Here's yeah. a great idea. Let's cut off a white person's head on TV. Yep. That'll do it. Only, no. So there's... There's only two explanations, stupid or paid to do it. Stupid or paid. So and I'm going out. for paid. And you, know, you mentioned conspiracy. The hallmark of conspiracy is the perversion of commerce and wisdom. And I think more than that, the old battle is... Not only in Gaza, in Ukraine, or in Ferguson, it's in our minds again. And it's, uh, as Louis said, you know, there is this constant stream of new news every day. That's one of the tricks used by the elites, along with deception, along with uh, lies, smoke screen, diversity, diver, um, entertainment, yeah. drugs. The main threat for the elites, I think, is people who think that's why they fear the most. People start to see reality as it is. So, yeah, I encourage all of our, our listeners to see reality left and right, objectively, as it is. That's the best service they can give themselves and the, probably the best service that we can give to our planet, well, that kind to of humanhood. Re- that kind of reminds me of something. There's a story about a magician. I think his name was the Great Benzine. He was a little short Sicilian guy or something like this. And he had these really small hands, and he was a card magician, and he would palm cards, but his hands were so small that the card was sticking out. Mm-hmm. But he was so successful because he had a good patter routine. And most people in, in, in magic say that what gets the trick across, what allows people to be deceived by the trick, is the talk, is the patter that you give them. And that's kind of what they do in the media. It's this constant stream of patter, this yeah. distracting patter, mm-hmm. distracting patter, so that you don't see the trick because you can't pay attention to two things at the same time or three things or four things. Mm-hmm. All these yeah. things going on. There's a pretty girl over here and all this stuff is happening. And it's magic. It's just a simple misdirection. Mm-hmm. And the modern media, basically the patter arm of this great big gigantic screw job magic trick of yeah. basically, you know, we're all getting cut in half on stage here and <laughs> and being distracted by the pretty girl in the leotard. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Um, we didn't even get to Ebola. We didn't get to Ebola, but you know what's going on there. Just Next week. Watch out and keep your diet uh, healthy. Yeah. Don't be eating too many carbs. And, and cold. Uh, 
They're called takes on this cold station. Maybe not, whatever. Uh, just, you know, yeah, read up on it and keep your eye on it and um, stay safe. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another show on another topic. Uh, really? Yeah, it'll be another topic and we'll be talking about it as usual. Breaking news. Breaking news. So, until then, just keep watching the news and watching the skies and watching the ground and watch out. And have a good one. Watch out in general. Yeah, so, and thanks to our callers and thanks to our chatters and thanks to all uh, the people here. (laughs) Thank you, Joe. See you next week. See you next week. Bye.